0: Almighty God, in your light do we see light, and in your truth find freedom. So let your word now do its work. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the truth, the goodness, and beauty of Jesus Christ this morning, and knit this congregation together in love. Let them be united together in Christ. Able to then go out and serve Edmond and Oklahoma City and the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there's, you know, different scriptures could have looked at this morning, talking about God's heart for the nations, right? Could have looked at Revelation 5, Revelation 7, seeing that one day we know that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather around the throne of Jesus and worship him. Could look at things like Deuteronomy, chapter 10, where God says that, God's word says, he executes justice for the fatherless, the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. But the people of God have always had this identity as who have been soldiers, who've been lost and exiled, but God as saved, and so that's how we in turn are to, to serve and love others. But this passage that we have this morning, 1 Thessalonians 2, especially verse 8, but really that whole section, this is like the most animating passage for me right now. Um, and the reason why is because I want you to think about how you would fill in the blank of this sentence, okay? Be careful of Christians. How would your your neighbor fill in the blank? Be careful of Christians because, what do you think? What do you think your coworkers would say, or your family members don't know Christ? What would they say? I know how many, many, many international students fill in that. It's, be careful of Christians because they only want to convert you. That is the predominant mindset amongst many international students across the US and especially at CTD. Be careful, of Christians. They don't really care about you. They just wanna get a notch on their belt. They just wanna go tell somebody that they saw someone come to know Jesus or something like that. So be careful because all that they're doing is a ruse, is to get you to convert. And the more time I'm in this role, since my fourth year in this role, um, the more I see, sadly, that these students are right. Because there's, you know, the random church group that shows up asking out tracks or doing street evangelism, or this semester there was someone with a megaphone on campus, you know, um, and they're not offering friendship. They're not offering relationships that these students are so eager for. They simply want to convert them and move on. Get that notch on their belt. Get that cool story to share with their friends or at church. And then there's, there's this other group of people, though, that have a little more patience, but really are the same. This other group of Christians who uh, they do become friends with students. maybe they get deals with them, and have them over, but then the topic of Christianity comes up uh, or religion and the student says, "You know I'm, I'm not really interested actually. Uh, I, I'm too busy to come to your Bible study. I'm not you know interested in learning more about Jesus. And then the invitations for dinner stop and the friendship stops. And the, the well-meaning, I think, Christian thinks, okay, that person's not interested. It's time to move on. But then you see how that narrative just gets reinforced over and over and over again. I knew it. They don't really want to be my friend. They don't really care about me. They just wanted to convert me. And I've learned that actually, when the students or anybody say, "I'm not really interested," uh, "I don't want to come to your Bible study," that that really um, is a good sign that we should press in and love them all the more. That when that stiff arm comes up, instead of moving on to continue in love, then changes that narrative of, oh, you you do care about me and I'm not a project for you. I'm a person to you that you, you want to know me and be my friend. And I want us to see that from our text today, that the gospel itself compels us to do that. Uh, It's not just some methodology, but the the gospel compels us to do that. And I also want to put my cards on the table and say that I have failed. Okay? like I'm not saying this from a place of, you know, I've been doing this awesome the last four years. I've learned this the hard way because I have done that. I've let go of a relationship too soon and thought, okay, they're not interested, and so I want to find someone who is. Um, And there's certainly something to be said about, you know, engaging with people who are interested, but at the same time, we can't let that stiff arm be the final say in our relationships. So I want us to see that the gospel compels us to something else, because I think, you know, I'm talking about international students, but I think that Oklahoma City is probably not that different. Because I think if your friends or co-workers or, you know, people you know who are Christians in that blank, they'd probably say, be careful of Christians because they only want to convert you. Maybe it's convert you to a political party. Maybe it's be careful because they want to convert you to, like, a religious way of life or a certain event on Sunday morning. Or be careful of Christians. They want to convert you to a certain schooling choice or... I don't know. I don't know what it's exactly like here. But I think our non-Christian friends and family members are wary of us as well. And wary of us for good reason. Um, but imagine if they said, be careful of Christians because even when you disagree or even when you reject them, they still love you. And they still invite you over to dinner. And they still want to be your friend. And they don't blast you on social media because you disagree, they're actually kind, and they listen. That's what I think the gospel compels us to. So looking at our text, the first thing to see is that for all of the good preaching and proclaiming of the gospel that Paul and Silas and Timothy did in synagogue, we see very clearly that Paul did not let the Thessalonians, think he only wanted to convert them. So we're going to look at just two things from this text, two things. We're going to look at what Paul didn't do, and then we're going to look at what Paul did do, okay? What he didn't do, what he didn't do. And kids, I want you to listen to three things this morning, okay? Three things to be paying attention to. The first is a story about someone who got beat up, okay? The second is something called the ball game. That I'll we'll talk about. And then finally a story about St. Augustine. Okay? So Jimmy Peter, the ball game, St. Augustine. Kids, that's your, that's your job. Listen to those things. So first, what did they what did Paul and Timothy and Silas not do? What did they not do? That's in verses one through six. Um, so we start in verse one and two, we see that Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in But though we have already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So just kind of setting the scene here, uh, Paul is reminding them that they were in Philippi before they came to Thessalonica. And that in Philippi, Paul and the gang were beat up. They were beaten with rods. They were thrown in prison. They were wounded. And they went through all this conflict. They they suffered and were shamefully treated. And then miraculously would be out of prison and they move on to Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, we know, Acts 17, that they were (coughs) preaching the gospel and meeting with people. And in this conflict in Thessalonica, the conflict revolved around Paul um, really being accused of not being very patriotic because he was saying there's a different lord than caesar we give our allegiance to it's jesus that didn't go over well in thessalonica so the whole city gets kind of turned upside down and paul has to basically flee and move on to the next city. he didn't want to leave thessalonica uh, but the brothers it says in in thessalonica make him leave like you're going to die if you stay here any longer so you need to go um, so there's all this conflict that they have. And Paul says in verse 2 that even with all this conflict, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of all this conflict.
1: I don't know about you, but if I was in one city and got
0: beat up and thrown in prison, it would make me pause to think about going to the next place knowing that that same fate probably would await me there. But what Paul is showing us is that the motivation to move on, the motivation to know we'll engage in conflict, and we probably aren't going to be beaten with rods in like the city, I would guess. But certainly, the gospel is going to bring conflict. And that's, again, that's politically across the spectrum. But this is, I'm not talking about left or right. It's going to bring conflict to both is going to be bring conflicts in our engagement with the world to say, Jesus is Lord. And what motivates us to have the courage to do that is not boldness in ourselves, not for us to muster up the strength to do that, but boldness in our God. That boldness in God is what motivates us to move forward knowing it's not going to be easy. And so Paul then says, how do we do that? How do we move forward and engaging with people with the gospel? Look at verse three. He says, "For because for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know." Nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made man as apostles of Christ. Here are all the noers and nevers and nots and all these things Paul is to. These are things we did not do with you, Testament. We did not come to you and attempt to deceive you. We didn't come with words of flattery. We never did these things. Our message didn't spring from error or impurity. We didn't sneak in the gospel, you know, at a picnic, or when you came over, we didn't try to didn't say, oh, welcome to have I'm glad that you know you're here to have this dinner with us. Let me show you this brief illustration about how you can come to know Christ in the saving way. Nothing like that.
1: No big switch,
0: right? Just clearly boldly presenting the gospel. Because the boldness that we have isn't in our methods, but in the message itself, in the gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. And, you know, it reminded me of a story I heard from uh, a story I'm many of you are familiar with a story from a woman who, uh, who was a lesbian who was getting hate mail from Christians. Okay? And she'd written an article and was getting hate mail from Christians. And she got one letter though from a pastor, and the pastor uh, didn't write hate mail. Instead, he did you know kind of challenge some of her presuppositions, but then said, "I would actually like to talk to you and have you over for dinner with my family." And uh, she says, for whatever reason, she took him up on this, and it was really instrumental in her coming to faith in Christ. And here's why. Here's what she said. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script as I had come to know it, when the evening ended and the pastor said he wanted to keep in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. No strings attached, right? No trickery, no big switch. Just let's, let's get to know each other and have a meal together. And because as time goes on, of course they shared a gospel with her. Of course they invited her church as time goes on. But it wasn't a means. Um, it wasn't some kind of trickery. And she knew that it was safe to accept their open hand for friendship. So we see there's all these things that we don't need to do. And Paul even talks about, you know, we didn't come and seek money from people. We didn't seek praise from man. We didn't need to bring up our accolades to impress people, hoping, hope, hoping then they'll listen to us. You know, if they do where I went like to school, or if they knew where I went like to seminary, or whatever, you then know, they'll really listen. No, it's none of that. So what did they do? Okay? Part two. What did they do? And that's in verses seven through eight. Where Paul says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you've become very dear to us. So, in this way, he's talking about what they did do. I want to just—I want to point out one tiny thing. If you have your Bible open, you might have a footnote of that word "gentle" in verse seven. It's okay if you don't—if you don't have your Bible open and you're looking at the bulletin, it's fine. But that word "gentle," you might have a footnote. And that footnote is this tiny footnote that says, Some manuscripts say infants. And you think, Well, that would be very strange. Uh, but we were infants among you, like Anderson mother. That doesn't make sense. So, of course, the copies must be gentle. But I want to convince you this morning that that word, infants, is the correct translation. And it's not wrong. You can disagree or think it's gentle. But it actually matters. So, hold, hold on. It matters, and here's why. Because the church fathers in their, you know, translation of this, they almost all say infants. Um, and it's not just that some manuscripts say infants, it's like some of the best English ones say infants. And what you can do, quick, quick little Greek grammar lesson, um, you can put a period uh, at the end of the word uh, gentle, if there were infants, so it would read in, in verse six, it would say, you know, we don't seek from glory from people. We could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were infants among you. Period. So, so what? What that means is he said, instead of saying in verse six, we could have come and made demands of you. We could have come in our superiority. We could have come from the top and a rightful superiority because we're apostles. Of Jesus Christ. We could have come like that, but instead, we came low. Low like babies. Low. Gentle, right? Gentle works. Gentle, like gentle like babies is how we came. Not with superiority, but with humility and lowliness like babies. I think this is, um, this is why a lot of people think Christians only want to convert them, actually. It's because often, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, Christians come from the top. They come from a place of superiority. I know the truth and you don't. I am better than you and you are a horrible sinner. So I'm coming to show you the way. That's my way. Um, you, can, you can see this, honestly, I, I see this sometimes in missionaries. Missionaries who think their whole lives, they are better and superior to the people they're serving and ministering amongst. It could be in all different kinds of ways, where another way it plays out is in relationships with people, if you're only in the posture of serving them, That is a place of superiority. If we're not then extending a relationship, a mutual relationship where I'm not just serving them but having them over for a meal, and then also maybe going to their house for a meal, then I'm just all the time communicating, I'm superior, you need me. Here's, I have the things you need. But we know that scripture tells us that that can't be. I mean, the whole big story of the Bible runs contrary to that. Think about you know, the paradigm that we use so often of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. We know from creation that every single human is made in the image of God. and There's no like, degrees of that, right? The Hindu, the Muslim, the atheist, they are just as much made in the image of God as me. They're not made in the image of whatever God they worship. No, they're made in the image of the one, true, triune God. And we know that from the fall, from, from sin, that we're also in the same boat. Because all that sin we fall short of the glory of God. I'm not a better sinner than them. I'm in the same boat. And the same thing applies to redemption, right? Because I'm saved not by picking myself up by my bootstraps, not because I mustered up faith and they didn't. Not because I discovered something. But of sheer grace. Grace alone that the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to see Jesus Christ as He truly is. So the blade field is level. You can't ever come from a place of superiority. And that's what Paul is saying. We didn't come from the top, but we got low and hang like babies among you. And then he says, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share not only the gospel, but our very selves. And that verse, again, that's why verse 8 is such an animating verse for me. Uh, he says, we were ready to share with you, not only the gospel. If there was anybody else but Paul, we'd say they're wrong. <laughs> we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our very lives, our very selves, is what we were wanting to give to you. And we see that we, we can't separate these two things. Even when I was originally preparing this sermon, I thought, okay, talk about sharing the gospel, and talk about sharing ourselves. But that already defeats the purpose, because they're supposed to be woven together in this in this way, forged together, and not be these things that are separate. Because you can't separate uh, it, There's this uh, missiologist and theologian who I draw a lot from uh, named Leslie Newbegin, who was a missionary in India for about 40 years. And then he came back to the UK and to Western culture and realized, wow, all the stuff I was dealing with in India with Hinduism and all these different gods, it's just the same thing here. Um, there's all these things that people worship and give their lives to. And I'm competing in this pluralistic society. Um, and this is what he said about preaching in the gospel and sharing our lives. He said, the purely verbal preaching of the story of Jesus, crucified and risen, would lose its power if those who heard it could not trace it back to some kind of community In which the message is being validated in a common way of life which is recognizable as embodying at least a hint and foretaste of the blessedness for which all men long and which the gospel promises as we preach the gospel people have to be able to trace it back to a community that's living it out and not even perfectly just like a tiny bit just like kind of being gracious like Stands in contrast to our current climate, cultural climate. Just being gracious, being forgiving. Just a hint of this gospel grace and life embodied together is what people need. One European scholar kind of puts it like this, the deed without the word is done. The word without the deed is empty. And to set these against each other is absurd. In our you know, in our ministry with RUF International, we, we do you know, deeds all the time. We're you know picking up students from the airport because we want to be there from day one to welcome them and let them know you have a friend here who will help you while you're adjusting to life in the US. We you know take them to the grocery store, we do all kinds of things, but like that doesn't make it inherently Christian. You know anybody can do that. Anybody can in the store. Um, so we have to talk about Jesus eventually, and we have to share the gospel. But it can't be only sharing the gospel. Look, all we did is say, good luck getting, you know, to your apartment home airport. Good luck finding groceries. Good luck getting furniture. We'll be here to tell you about Jesus when you're ready. We know that's absurd. Francis uh, group, he was a, uh, 20th century uh Presbyterian minister african american was pastor of this church and conceived for like 50 years and he said it like this the only effective way of propagating christianity is to live it it is all right to preach it by word of mouth but if we are not careful to live it our words will go for nothing and so why why you can't separate these things why you can't separate Words and deeds, why you can't separate sharing the gospel and sharing yourself, is because Paul's analogy of a nursing mother really like drives that home. Because nursing mothers don't separate these things. Think about it: the nursing mother is literally giving of herself for the life of her child, literally giving of her own self. And being affectionately desirous of them, she gives to them. And Paul says to the Thessalonians that that's how we were with you. That we were in this way of giving of our lives, giving of ourselves. When you think about it with your own kids, like I think, like I think about it with my kids, right? I have two daughters, nine and five, been married for 12 years. And my kids always want to play this game called the ball game. Okay? You so know what the ball game is at my house? The ball game is I hold a dry ball and they try to get it from me. That's the ball game. And so we, you know, I'm doing this, I'm on my knees on the ground, and we're tackling, we're tickling, we're laughing. Dad, can you play the ball game? Dad, can you play ball game? And now imagine if I said, no, no, children. Bible story time. No ball game today. Catechism time. No ball game. Time for you to know the good news of Jesus. No ball game. You know that's like weird. You know, just hearing that strikes an odd note. I know some of you can imagine that because maybe your families were like that, where it's just this overloaded. Got to know the right thing. Got to know the right thing. Parents absent in life. That affection was missing, and that's painful. I know not everyone's story is just like perfect when it comes to this, okay? But we know that that strikes a wrong note when I say that about what I did with my kids. But in the rest of life, we know that if that's how we interact with others, that that's not loving people, right? To think, well, I'm I'm just only going to share the gospel, never share my life. That's just using people actually ourselves go better. Uh, some evangelistic pressure we have on ourselves or something. I, I don't know. And I think there's a, a, a few problems, like a few reasons why, why we do this. I, I think it's because we are are so guilty in our culture, and, and even especially honestly in our, our church tradition, We're so guilty of thinking what people really need to know is the right information. And if they just knew the right information, they would be changed. And so my job is to give them the right information. But Paul says people need not only the right information, the right message, the gospel message, but they need you. They need us together. They need your shoulder to cry on. They need you to be there for them, but they need you to go to the grocery store. But we don't want to do that. Why? This all sounds great, but we don't, we don't want to do this. Why? Why do we want to only share the gospel and not share our very selves? This is not an exhaustive list. I'm going to give you three reasons why I think. We don't want to do this. Because then we can't fake it anymore.
1: Because if you have to give of your very
0: life, if you have to give of your very self, if you have to share your home and have people into your home and share what your family life is like. Then you can't fake it. You can't just come on a Sunday and always have it all together and go back home. Or just having you know, your good close friends come and drop in, but if we have to have strangers in our homes, if we have to have others among us, then we can't just keep it. I think another reason is we're we're very a very results-driven culture and not a relationally-driven culture, and so just for example, often people ask me. Uh, David, in your ministry, how many people have you seen come to you know Christ? That's, that's fine. And that's a perfectly fine question to ask, by the way. But that's like the only question people ask a lot of the time. Like, you want to hear the stories of the hundreds of people who haven't? And the relationships we have, and the ways this person is reading the Bibles for the first time in their life? Um, but the criteria is set on like, how many decisions have you seen? Or, you know, things like that. You know, when I when I'm exploring the gospel with students, um, I think about the first semester I was just trying to do this. There was this group of students, uh, PhDs and master's students, and a couple of them, uh, a couple of their wives, would come over to my house. We'd have dinner, read, we read through the big story of the Bible in one semester. That was the idea. So we get to the Ten Commandments one week. We get to Exodus one week, and I just asked them, you know. Have you ever heard of the Ten Commandments? I'm not asking if you know any of them, just have you ever heard, in general, of the Ten Commandments? Of the six people there, uh, they said, no, 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 no. Not even heard of the Ten Commandments. And so this, if, if, if we're relationally driven and not results driven, it's not as exciting, at least exciting sounding, right? There's not always great stories to share the way the world or even the Christian subculture thinks of stories to share. But that means that we have to leave it with God. And we have to, have to trust God with the results. And can focus on the relationships and leave it up to Him. And I have to live by faith. That He's the one who converts people. That the Holy Spirit is the one who opens people's eyes. And not us. And I think the last reason, one of the reasons, like I said, is we have to actually get to know people and not just know apologetics. And
1: what I mean by that is I know
0: people, personally, who are obsessed with apologetics, obsessed with finding out the right answer for every potential conversation. But in doing this, they spend their time in such a way and prepare for these conversations with people they'll actually never meet. And preparing for arguments with people they'll never have over for dinner. And winning imaginary arguments. Um, all the while, they ignore their actual coworkers, their actual neighbors, actual people in their lives, spending time on social media, spending time on the internet, spending time reading. Apologetics, you know, defensive behavior and stuff. And again, there is nothing wrong in and of itself with apologetics. Don't walk away we're this morning thinking, why are you up against We don't need apologetics. Um, but what I'm saying is instead, we could spend time getting to know people, hearing the real questions they have, the real questions they're, they're asking, and we're free to say, I don't. I don't know, I have never thought about that, but I'll spend the next week looking into that, I'll get back to you, and what's have have coffee again and talk about that? See, that's honoring of the relationship and of the question, and you are then doing some apologetics, right? you're actually getting to build them, and getting to build that relationship with them. And again, that's just another like, symptom, right, of this obsession we can have with the right information, right knowledge, As if that's what Christianity is about. As if that's what maturity as a Christian was about. Just knowing more of the right things. But Jesus said, You will know them by their fruit, not you will know them by their answers. You know, Augustine, he was uh, a very promiscuous man. You may know that. St. Augustine, before he came to know Christ. And, you know, eventually he was brought to faith in Christ in the city of. Milan, and there was a bishop in Milan named Ambrose, the eloquent preacher, this amazing, renowned preacher, Ambrose. And Augustine, as he reflected on his relationship with Ambrose and his time there, Augustine said this, it was not your great teaching. I scarcely expected to find that in the Christian church in any case. But it was that you were coming to And again, hear me say, I, I'm not saying only live it out and never open your mouth. Of course not. But we have to, to realize, as many people have said, that we love people into the kingdom of God far more often than we argue into the kingdom of God. And people can tell the difference. People know the difference. And I think this is what they saw in Jesus. I was reminded of this hymn, you know, and, and, and the noble grace hymn that's been redone called Did Christ over Sinners Weep? And the first line of that hymn is, Did Christ over Sinners weep? And shall our cheeks be dry? And this I think is the answer. All these problems, all these um, all these issues I've brought up. The answer is in looking to Jesus Christ. Because if you know, if we left out up and said, let's go do this. Let's change the narrative. Let's go love people unconditionally and show them that King's cross is going to be like that. I would have certainly failed you this morning. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and see the tears in His eyes for the lost, and fix our eyes in Him and see how He is the one who gave not just the gospel, but his very self for us. That's how we move forward because the one who could have made demands, not just as an apostle, but the one who could have made demands as the Of heaven, right? But he came low, literally, as a baby. Literally low, as an infant born and born. Our uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism talks about Christ and his humility, his humiliation, like this, about how low Jesus got for us. It says, Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death. When I think about Jesus coming to earth, have you ever thought about this? Come when there's electricity, like at the very least, where there's a hot water heater, where you can have barbecue, tacos, and like at least come then. But Jesus came 2,000 years ago in this low condition, in poverty. And even if, even if Jesus would have come like today, you know, with all the comforts of this world, it would be like living in a crawl space compared to the glory he had. Jesus is the one and how we can see so clearly from the gospel and from Scripture that he didn't come again just to give us the right information but he came to to give us his very life. And it reminds us that we don't come then to the gospel, we come to a person. We come to Jesus Christ. The one who absorbed the wrath of God for us on the cross, who took our place and freely laid down his life for us. The one who entered in the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. And why did he do that? Why did he do all that? Because he is affectionately desirous of us. he keeping low for you and for me. Think of how great again that distance is between this holy, righteous God who created all things stepped into the world that he made to rescue it because he wanted to. Because he felt, you know, compelled to or pressured to or something he just had to do. Because he loved us and wanted to. Not to get a notch on his belt. Not to prove something. But because he's the king and he's the father of who wants us in his family. And think about the way that Jesus has dealt with us then of giving us the gospel and giving us of himself. And he tells his disciples, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Talked about this with some guys last night. Think about that. Think about As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. I've got really great news. This is, this is, Easier than we think, because you know how Jesus was sent by the Father. You know what Jesus was sent to do, and how he did his ministry. It was by eating with people and by having parties and dancing. There's, I'm I, I, forgetting the name of this book. It's something like um, "Eating Your Way Through Luke" or "Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel," and it just shows how in these interactions that Jesus had, he's just always eating with people. He's always at table, dining at table. And he's accused of being a mutton and a drunk. Uh, well, this book I read for international student ministry is called 3D Gospel. And it reminded me of this: that a shared table preaches God's honor as loudly as a sermon in collectivist societies. I think in individualistic societies too. As we share our tables, we honor people. And we can give them God's honor because we're united to Jesus Christ by faith. We are connected to the saving King. And you know where we get to see this dynamic so clear is at the table this morning. Because we're reminded that Jesus just doesn't give us the right information, He gives us Himself. Even though we continue to sip on Him, even though we continue to stray. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Jesus doesn't give up on us and move on to somebody else. He keeps coming after us. He keeps loving us. And He says again, come and eat with me. Come have a meal with me. Share in my life and in my very and I will give it to you. I've it all, and i come low for you. So let's pray now together. Lord, we ask that you would bring your light and your truth into our hearts, into our lives, into the life of this body. Uh, Holy Spirit, please make us wise. Please give us courage. Please guide us, strengthen us, us so that we will be strong in faith, hope, and love, that we might persist in pursuing the lost the same way that, Lord, you have pursued us. So I pray now, I pray now, Almighty God, that you would strengthen your church, strengthen this body and do what only you can do in <coughs> the and comforting the hearts of people, we ask. In Jesus' name.